0: Welcome to Six Degrees of Silvis, a podcast where we talk with artists, art collectors, advisors, museum directors, and curators to learn firsthand how the art world operates and how each participant uniquely addresses vital issues of our time. This week, John talks with former Metropolitan Museum of Art Chief Registrar John
1: Buchanan. I played a role in bringing beauty. And entertainment and education, I think. Because I think looking at a, at a particular painting or other work of art, in many senses, is like reading a book.
0: Here's the host of the show, John Silvis. I am your host, John Silvis. I'm an art advisor and a curator based in New York. Most of my research I share with my friends and my clients to focus on global contemporary art, usually with emerging and mid-career artists. With this podcast, I hope to pull back the curtain to uh, allow us to engage with some of the conversations that happen in the art world and encourage and push the art conversation forward. Please join me in welcoming these wonderful guests. Greetings everyone, and thank you for joining Six Degrees of Silvis today. I'm the host, John Silvis, and it's my pleasure to introduce John Buchanan, who goes by Jack, on our podcast today. John, was born in Glen Falls, New York in 1931 and has had an amazing career as a professor and as the chief registrar of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. And then in the last years as a historical author. Uh, Many of you might know his books on the American Revolution that have been reviewed to much acclaim He started working at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in 1966 and then five years later was uh, taken from his role as an archivist to um, head the position of registrar, which involved many different aspects, including negotiating with governments, um, local leaders, And so it's a real privilege to find out more about his role in the art world and the importance of people like him in the museum world. So really pleased to be able to get to know Jack better today. So uh, good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining. I'm so pleased to have uh, John Buchanan, Jack Buchanan with us today. Uh, Jack, it's been uh, wonderful to get to know you better and to hear about your amazing and uh, prolific career. You're widely known as a historian and an author of historical nonfiction. I know you've written a lot about the American Revolution, which is a really uh, exciting period of course in our history. And today though, I wanna focus on uh really a big uh component of your career which was working as the chief registrar at the Metropolitan Museum in New York Um, as a participant in the art world I've always been fascinated by museums and uh what happens there I've never worked at a museum and I think our audience will be really uh interested and excited to hear about your work there your life there and then also you know, the kind of the history of the museum and how it's changed over the years. So welcome, and it's great that you took the time to talk to us.
1: Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here, John.
0: Great. Um, So the other day when we um, had a chance to uh, sit in the sweltering sun in Brooklyn, um, it occurred to me that Uh, You know, you've had a very, very unique position that even some of my peers in the art world might not know about and and that's all the things that take place um, at the museum and what a critical role uh, you played in making exhibitions happen, making the museum function, and then also preserving uh, really the legacy of our culture. Um, It's it's a pretty uh, daunting task. So you, you talked a little bit in your biography about um, the early years in the museum and how much more informal it was. So I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about um, those early experiences, the, the hiring process, what that was like uh, back in 1966 when you started working at the Metropolitan Museum.
1: Sure. Uh, well, I, I was an archivist at the time. I worked at Cornell as an archivist, and I was with the Western Electric Company uh, down at 195 Broadway, uh, the old Western Electric Company that made all the telephones and communications equipment back Uh then. And uh, I saw a notice uh, at the Society of American Archivists meeting uh, that year, 66, uh, in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. But Museum was looking for an archivist, so I applied and and, uh, got an appointment for an interview. Uh, I went up, the first fellow who talked to me uh, was Gary Keys, who was the assistant secretary of the museum. And we never talked about the job or my qualifications for the job. We just sort of chatted about matters in general, uh, New York politics, et cetera. Then he took me in to see Dudley Easby, the secretary of the museum. And we never talked about my qualifications uh, or, uh, or, or, or the job. Uh, Dudley knew that I'd worked at Cornell. His wife had gone to Cornell, so he told me Cornell stories about him at University of Pennsylvania Law School uh, driving up to Ithaca to see football games. Uh-huh. And uh, uh, finally, uh, after talking also to the treasurer, Ken Lockry, but he said, Well, he said, uh, job's yours if you want it. And I said, I do. And he said, And we shook hands, and that was that. Then he picked up the telephone and he called the manager of personnel. Mm-hmm. The term human resources had not appeared yet. Called the manager of personnel, and, and I heard him say, uh, uh, Jesse, uh, I'm sending uh, John Buchanan down to see you. Uh, take care of the paperwork, will you? I just hired him as archivist. So I went down and there were two members of the personnel office then, the manager and her secretary. That was it. And uh, she was curt with me. She was really upset about being cut out of the hiring process. Mm -hmm. And I did the same thing about five months later when Dudley told me I could hire an assistant archivist and we hired her and sent her down to Jesse to fill out the paperwork. And Jesse was so upset, she never spoke to Pat again, Pat Pellegrini, who I had hired. So, yeah, it was very informal. Uh, I I checked, and in 2018, before the pandemic, uh, Human Resources had 20 people.
0: Incredible. As
1: opposed to two back in 66.
0: That is amazing. So they they didn't talk to you about salary or any of those. Well, yes,
1: they details. did. Yeah, well, they, they told did. me what okay. the salary was, and okay. uh, but and, but that was about it. And and but then Dudley said, uh, "Well, um, y- y- you should talk to the woman who's retiring, who's taking care of archives. Uh, she was the assistant for archives, mm-hmm. and uh, not the archivist. Uh, women weren't given jobs like that then." and uh, made department heads. So um, I I did. uh, I I went in and and then two weeks later, uh, November 7th, 1966, I began work at the museum as the archivist.
0: So after uh, five years working as an archivist, uh, you then uh, got to know Thomas Hoving, the new director of the museum, who was quite an important and impressive character. I'd love to hear more about uh, your relationship with him and then also being appointed the chief registrar at that point.
1: Right. Um, it was 1970. And uh, the museum was starting a huge expansion program into Central Park. Mm. And- Park lovers were horrified and rose up in arms. There were public meetings, a raucous one in the auditorium of the American Museum of Natural History where people screamed at each other uh, over this. And I'd just like to add that the museum was not going outside of its bounds. It was going to build into what was called, and I quote, a designated site given to it by the park commissioners in 1872. And it actually it actually says between 79th and 82nd Streets from Fifth Avenue to the drive behind the museum. And uh, so that's the land that the uh, museum was expanding into. This was a big project of the trustees. And that's one of the reasons Tom Hovling got hired. He was an art historian. He was a medievalist with a PhD from Princeton but he'd also served as parks commissioner in the Lindsay administration for a while. And uh, he knew the ins and outs of city government, and he knew all the movers and shakers in mm. town. And he told me, uh, Tom Hoving told me, that's why the um, the um, trustees hired him. He'd been at the museum before parks, so we had museum experience, but it was this knowledge of city government and uh, his, 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 his close relationship with movers and shakers around the city that got him the job.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I met Tom during this period when uh, all this this huge controversy was going on over expansion. There was going to be a hearing at the New York City Council down in City Hall okay. on it. And this was going to be a key meeting, whether the museum was going to be allowed to go ahead. Mm-hmm. Well. Uh, so Tom needed somebody to coordinate this. He had people lined up who were going to testify for, um, for the museum. But somebody had to coordinate getting them down to City Hall at the right time to testify before the council. And he had his eye on a young fellow. Uh, well, it actually, he wanted him to do it. A young fellow who worked in the secretary's office. Uh, but he was out sick. So he looked around for another warm body, and he grabbed me. Hey, Buchanan, he doesn't have anything to do down there at Archives. So he grabs me, gives me a sheet of paper with a whole list of names on it, no other information. And uh, he said, uh, we're having a city council hearing in two weeks. He said, you're going to have to coordinate this and get people down. Those were the about the limit of my instructions. Wow. So... But I got all the information I needed from his secretary, and I did the job. I uh, got in touch with all these people, business people, uh, politicians, uh, people high up in the cultural uh, world in New York City. And And I lined them up, and I got the information from the city council office when these people were scheduled to appear that day. And, and I emphasized to them, look, when it says 10.45 in the morning, uh, it could be alert somewhat before that. It could be somewhere after that, depending on how long council members took questioning people, no shows, things like that. Well, make a long story short, it worked out fine. We got everybody down there. A couple of very unhappy people Who had to drop everything at the last minute when I got in touch with them? Oh, staying in touch with them before cell phones when they're out of the office, so they had to tell me where they were going to be at at, on that day.
2: Yeah, if
1: not in the office, where and how do I get in touch with you? Well, it worked out fine. Everything went fine, Uh, and uh, there were no roadblocks after that to the expansion. And then a year later. Tom called me into his office again, and uh, you know, know, he was a flamboyant and controversial character. Mm -hmm. Uh, He he, he was called, uh, when he died in 2009, one headline was, the man who made the modern Met. Well, he not only made the modern Met, he remade the art museum world with these blockbuster exhibitions, and also one thing that isn't often commented on, a liberal loan policy. Mm. His predecessor, as director, James Warmer, hated loans. Hated them. Tom immediately announced a liberal loan policy to share the riches of the museum, um, just individual loans to exhibitions that other people were putting on, worldwide and, and domestic. So, anyway, he called me into his office. He said, uh, uh, you know, the... Bill Wilkinson has resigned, the registrar, and he's going to become director of the Mariner's Museum in Newport News. I said, I know. He said, you're the new registrar. He says, get down there, ASAP. He said, we got a lot of big exhibitions coming up, so drop everything in archives and get down there. And I said to him, can I give you an answer tomorrow, Tom? What do you mean? He said, I said, well, this is a big change, and I always talk over big changes with my wife. You do? I said, yes. Oh, okay. He sort of shrugged. Obviously, he didn't know why. Yeah. And, and he later told Arthur Rosenblatt, who became a good friend of mine. Uh, he was the head of architecture and planning. Tom had brought him from Parks. He told Arthur, or said to Arthur, why, was, why would John want to talk this over with his wife? And Arthur said, guys do that. They do? And I write in my memoir, of course they do, as Tom talked over with his wife, Nancy, the offer to be director of the museum. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the next day I came in, Susie and I went down the lavou door and had frog's legs and a bottle of Sancerre and talked it over and uh, decided I should take it. And I went in the next day and, and uh, said, thank you, Tom, I'd, I'd like to be the new registrar. And uh, so that's how I became a registrar.
0: Incredible. So he obviously trusted you. And then at that time, you guys were working on really major exhibitions like Treasures of the Vatican, um, the uh, Great Bronze Age of China. Um, These were all things that had not come to the U.S. Mm -hmm. prior, I'm I'm guessing. And so um, was that one of his visions to... Um, kind of create a more international dialogue for the museum and present these things to an American audience?
1: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That 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 was part of his vision for the museum. And as you say, immediately uh, I was thrust in, into this. Uh, one thing I'd like to point out about the registrar's office, the registrar had charge of uh, not only uh, well, record keeping of accessions coming in, loan, uh, individual loans and special exhibitions, but packing of art, the transportation of art, mm. security and transit of art, and the museum's fine arts insurance policies. Mm-hmm. Uh, both the regular policy covering the museum's holdings uh, and uh, special exhibition policies uh, or or uh, keeping keeping individual loans on our policy, or accepting somebody else's policies. So uh, I was I was thrown into this, and and and, and it was a fast learning experience uh, I because we were already going. going yeah, because
0: you had to learn hundreds of different aspects of these uh, big loans and uh, shipping yeah. kind of overnight.
1: Um. The, the I think the two most fascinating loans to me were Tutankhamun
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then uh my last major special exhibition which I worked on from about 89 through 90 uh, Mexico uh which uh, was of epic scale and complexity but Tutankhamun the the um Really, the Cold War was the engine that moved that enterprise. Nixon and Kissinger went to uh, Egypt after some seven years of no diplomatic relations between the two countries. Oh, wow! Uh, Kissinger negotiated uh, a, um, a treaty with with Egypt. Diplomatic relations were established, and in the um, uh, the, the, the the treaty uh, uh, was a. Very small paragraph saying that the, that the museum um, or, or the United States would help uh, fund the Cairo Museum and Opera House. And in return, Egypt would send Tutankhamen, treasures of Tutankhamen to the United States. And Nixon wanted more venues and more objects than the Soviet Union it had had. Mm-hmm. And the Egyptians said, okay. So I made arrangements to fly the exhibition to New York uh, rather to Washington because it was uh, to the Dulles Airport because it was going to open at the National Gallery of Art in Washington. And then there was a terrorist incident that scared the Egyptians. So they said, no, it can't fly. It has to go by U.S. naval vessel. Oh, wow. This was the only time that we used an American embassy. Tom happened. Thank God he was there. Tom happened to be in Cairo. He went to Herman Isles, the American ambassador, laid out the problem, and here's the old boy network working to perfection, functioning smoothly. Iles picks up the phone, calls James Admiral James Holloway, chief of naval operations. Jim, I uh, I need a ship, (laughs) literally, and. got it. u s. naval ship uh, picked up the uh, exhibition in Alexandria and brought it to uh, the u s. Naval Base in Norfolk, Virginia. And I met the exhibition there because and uh, uh, what else the the Egyptians had um, insisted upon, it could not fly in the United States either. It had to go by over the road mm. transportation. and uh, not only would I be with it, but an Egyptian curator would always be with me at each move. And uh, uh, besides my security team, it, it, it also had to be escorted by state police all the way across the country. So...
0: Uh, and where did it travel to? It traveled from the National Gallery then to... the National
1: Gallery to the, the Field Museum, in, in, in collaboration with uh, the Oriental Institute in Chicago, mm-hmm. then to uh, the New Orleans Museum of Art, then to Los Angeles County Museum of Art, then to Seattle, then the final stop, the Metropolitan Museum. And uh, it was over the road transportation all the way. In other words, a convoy, two trucks, because yeah. uh, there were only 55 objects. In the ex, that's small as it international small. exhibition goes. Yeah. I mean, in the Mexico exhibition, there were 350 works. Wow! Uh, so we only had the 55 uh, divided between two over the road vans, and I met it in in uh, in in Norfolk, and uh, and we took it around the country. State police in every state were more than helpful, except we had to. Two, two little problems. Uh, Maryland said, We don't do escorts. And this ex policeman on our staff, whom I was using to contact police, uh, uh, you know, he asked why. And he said, They said, Every jumped up lawyer who gets elected to Congress wants an escort. We don't do escorts. <laughs> And Joe said, you know, we're not jumped off lawyers and explained the international implications. So they came across and they gave us an escort. Oregon said, uh, we don't do escorts, we observe. Well, what do you mean by that? We will have you under observation, sir. And when we crossed, going to Seattle, when we crossed the Oregon line, uh, state police crews that pulled in behind us and followed us all the way to Washington State. <laughs>
2: interesting.
1: So, and, and and it worked out fine. Uh, one interesting story with Tut, I, I think you'll find interesting. There was, uh, everybody wanted the show. Museums all over the country wanted that show. And uh, uh, we got a letter from the late Goodman Vitel, who was the... Uh, director of the High Museum in Atlanta, which is the leading fine arts museum in the South.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And he was being raked over the coals by the Atlanta establishment. Why aren't we getting the show? So Tom handed me the letter. He said, take care of this, John. So I wrote Vigtele and I pointed out, I said, no one to blame but the Atlanta political and business establishment because it's going to New Orleans because Congress, um, uh, Louisiana has a savvy congresswoman by the name of Lindy Boggs, who went to the State Department and demanded that that show go to the New Orleans Museum of Art and she got her way. Mm. So so I wrote big Tell uh, to that effect. I hope that got, it, got the, the big shots off his back.
0: Well, so yeah, I mean, it sounds extremely complicated and uh, political to bring a, a show like that. Um, how, why? So the Metropolitan Museum was, or uh, Thomas Hoving was given the responsibility to care for it and also decide on on where it goes or who, who made that decision. No,
1: actually. no, he he t- he didn't he didn't want to do it. He turned oh, it yeah. over to the State Department. I see. Okay, and the State Department made the choices. And of course, that's when Lindy Boggs from Louisiana went directly to the State Department and said, it will be in New Orleans. Mm. She had clout. Mm -hmm. She had a lot of clout.
0: But then you were chosen to accompany it and make sure that everything was done. Well,
1: that was the the chief registrar's job. Yeah. Uh, um, I mean, I could have assigned somebody else in the office to do it, but... uh, I, uh, I wanted to do Tuck t- t- myself, mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. I did uh, all the way. So uh, it must uh,
0: have been very different b- back then without computers and, and all the digital tools that we have now. Um, was all the record keeping and all of the communication, was that all done analog still
1: at that point? Typewriter, typewriters, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. So that oh, yeah. required. That was 1976, 76, 78.
0: So that would have required a lot of personnel just to um, manage all that paperwork and
1: had four four people in the outer office who did that. Um, uh, three three of them especially who did the record keeping and produced all that paperwork. Hmm. And then of course uh, I can't uh, uh, I, I can't neglect uh, 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 the Packers. Uh, both at the museum and 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 another job of the chief registrar uh, or or in any member of the registrar's office when they took uh, exhibitions elsewhere was to oversee the unpacking and the repacking.
2: Mm.
0: Yeah, and, uh, which is a key key aspect. I'm sure that yes. the insurance yes.
1: wants to know. Yes. That is oh, yeah. properly done. And in fact, on one occasion. Um, uh, I, I brought the Paul Clay exhibition mm. from Germany uh, to uh, the Tate in London. And uh, the, uh, our, our lead underwriter at Lloyd's uh, asked me, uh, Michael Moss uh, became a good friend. And, and Michael asked me if he could be present at the Tate while we unpacked and did condition reports. So I asked the Tate and they complied. And he said there was a real eye-opener to him mm. uh, at the care that was taken the good packing uh, and then the uh, conservator standing by and doing condition, written condition reports as the objects were unpacked.
2: Mm.
0: And so you guys would, that was a standard practice then for every exhibition that you did was to keep notes and condition yes. reports.
1: Condition reports were done at, at every stop um, both when they were unpacked, and then later when just before they were repacked, because they've been on exhibition, say for two or three months, and the conservatories would then, um, and and you'd have both the Tate conservatories and one of our conservatories mm. there, and uh, they'd be conferring back and forth. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember a conservator at the Art Gallery of Ontario. Uh, I was there to pick up a painting. And uh, it, it was laying face down in its crate. Um, and the, the, the can't, well, it, it had plexiglass over the canvas. Uh, but even with plexiglass, it never touches the bottom of the crate. Uh, it, 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 it's, uh, it, it was laying there. And the lid hadn't been put on. And she was kneeling before it. Uh, and I remember she had her hands in her face, uh, 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 her face in the hand, and she just kept staring. And it took about a half an hour. So I went off and did the paperwork, signed the receipts, came back. She's still there. She finally got up and she said uh, to the packers they could put the lid on. They put the lid on, we screwed it, they screwed it down, and we, she followed us uh, to the truck, and we put in the truck up against the side, and lashed it in so it wouldn't move. Mm-hmm. We locked, locked the back door, and the last I saw of her through the rearview mirror, she was standing there with an anguished look on her face. <laughs> and so we took off with this painting. And she reminded me of one conservator, and and I don't want to be too hard on conservators. Uh, I got along with them fine. We we had some wonderful conservators. A few young Turks who tried to get involved in in packing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, one of the conservators at the museum, I remember a paintings conservator, she said, John, my aim is to prevent moms. Mm -hmm. Well, of course. She was tilting at windmills. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So what was your, uh, one of your favorite aspects of the job of of being the registrar? Like what were the kind of aspects of the job that you enjoyed the most, would
1: you say? uh, Besides the travel, working with colleagues, Mm. both at the museum and around the world. I met some wonderful people Mm. all over the world, Europe, Asia, uh, Middle East uh, I, I just yeah I think that that was my favorite mm,
2: my collaborating
1: favorite. Um, collaborating w- with colleagues uh, <laughs> both my own and, and traveling with them uh, uh, both especially especially the six trips I made to the Soviet Union um, interesting um, but also in India, China, Japan, Israel. Uh, Cairo mm-hmm. so uh, yeah that was uh, I think that that was my main enjoyment is working working with these people Um, wh- one thing I, I, I'd like to be I mentioned the Mexico exhibition which yes. was my last major exhibition mm-hmm. um, as I said it was epic scale and complexity 350 works from Mexico, 50 from Europe and the States, a total of 138 lenders wow. together. Wow. And um, uh, in and the first time in its history, the museum set up a satellite office in Mexico City to work on the nuts and bolts. They started about 1988. And there were two, I met two amazing young women uh, mm-hmm. who were hired. Um, in that office, both American living in Mexico, fluent in Spanish, Karen Anderson and Debbie Nagao. And uh, they were terrific. And they, they made contact with all the high officials of Mexican cultural organizations. They had all these contacts. Then in 1988, there was a Mexican election, a new president came into office all of those high officials were swept out of office mm. and new appointees they had to do it all over again, introduce wow. themselves to these people along along with with our two curators who were down there working on the show. I didn't appear uh, un- until um, the summer of 1989 uh, to start working on that show came with the, with a the team. there was a um, uh, Jeff Daly, the head of design. Uh, uh, and 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 others, head of the, the head of our riggers, he he, he came with us, and uh, we came in the summer of eighty nine. And by then, they had completed the work on the second round of officials. Uh, wow. karn and and Debbie had. Um, there was some there was some tense times. Uh, we had um, political problems. There were some people in Mexican cultural offices, uh, they remember the Mexican War when we took Texas and Nevada sure. and Utah, the whole Southwest in California. Uh, and uh, you know that old saying that the Mexicans have, so close to the United States, so far from God. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was that feeling. There was yeah. that feeling. But we overcame that. Uh, I met a lot of nice people down there, uh, but we we had we had some problems. And at the same time that we were working on Mexico, this huge complex show, I was moving the Paul Clay exhibition mm. uh, to the Tate and then home. We did Goya, Velasquez, Canaletto, and Gold of Africa that year. At the same time, we're working on the. um, The Mexican. I I had a great staff. I really had a great staff who were doing, uh, working on those shows as well as, uh, uh, bringing in accessions, sending out individual loans, receiving individual loans. Yeah, great, great staff. But we had we had some political other political problems. Um. When we bought, we borrowed from churches, mm-hmm. and um, the the uh, and, and and there was an organization that we had to deal with uh, uh, for the churches. But in some areas, there were cult objects, mm-hmm. uh, usually baptismal founts. Mm-hmm. and um, we 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 went down to uh, let's see. Oh yes, we went to a, a town called and uh, I hope I got the pronunciation right, tepec was about uh, 45 to 50 miles west of Mexico City. Mm. Small, small place. We got there, and 50, but people opposed to the exhibition, and there were a lot of people in Mexico opposed to the exhibition. Um, they'd gotten there first and handed out flyers that foreign, quote, foreign museum thieves, end quote, were coming to steal their baptismal fountain, 16th century baptismal fountain. We got there some 1,500 angry parishioners surrounding the church. Oh, my goodness. We were barricaded in the the president of the village, the president's office. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember one of the, uh, there were two women with me from the museum, and uh, one of them said, I think we're going to get lynched. You know, I mean, there was pandemonium going on. Well, they finally got some official vehicles together and sandwiched ours in between them and drove us out of there. And we just dropped that baptismal fount.
0: Oh, my goodness. Yeah.
1: We went to another village south of Mexico to look in another baptismal fount. And I remember it was a dry. this, This village was in a dry, dusty valley. And there was a Mexican big shop had this beautiful hacienda on a hill overlooking the, uh, uh, the village. And he had us up there, and it was beautifully appointed. Uh, he had a barbecue for us. I remember Karen Anderson reminding me that uh, uh, the, the, uh, te- all the tequila poured mm. on the tacos, just made those tacos absolutely delicious. And it was a lovely afternoon. But I had noticed as we went through the town, the men of that village looked solid. Mm-hmm. So we left, went back. After we had left, sometime after we had left, uh, oh, and, and this Mexican big shot had pledged, I'll get the fountain for you. Well, somebody was shot and killed over over this whole issue.
2: Over
0: the fount yeah.
1: Yes, and then some of the men of the village came up to the hacienda when the big shot wasn't there and burned it to the ground.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: So uh, Johanna Hecht, uh, who was one of the two curators, uh, uh, Julie Jones, who specialized in pre-Columbian art, was the other. Johanna scratched that off her list. The only image of a baptismal fount in the catalog is a photograph of of some... Found somewhere else, so we never got that baptismal found. And and in uh, on and in in the village of uh, uh, a village way down south. Uh, we we wanted an object from there, and Johanna had cut that off her list too because uh, uh, the, the, the the people were just dead set against it, mm. and uh, the state government wasn't cooperating. So, so, that was in it. But on the whole, it was a great experience. And then at the end, we, we flew almost the entire show out of Mexico, Mexico City, to New York. Mm-hmm. But the big, oversized, but like huge OMEC head, which weighed ten thousand three hundred and sixty pounds in its crate, uh, the head of the feathered serpent, uh, almost uh, eighty-five hundred pounds in its crate. Five of the objects had to go overland, and uh, that was the last shipment. And I uh, drove to the border uh, in the truck uh, uh, with the drivers um, to the border, escorted by federales. And at the border, my NYPD security team picked me up. We. Uh, I used an outfit called Stewart Investigations, which was run by Jack Stewart, uh, an ex-retired uh, uh, lieutenant of homicide uh, from Midtown, uh, uh, the Midtown Station. And uh, these were either retired or moonlighting NYPD detectives. I, I used them throughout the Vatican, and uh, Mexico, and they met me at the border. And then we took off from New York. And the only stops, uh, both in Mexico and the States, were pit stops. That's all. We just kept driving.
0: Kept driving, yeah.
1: 2,265 miles. 68 hours later, after leaving Mexico City, we backed the the van (laughs) into the loading dock at the Metropolitan Museum. Now, I call that, in my memoir, uh, I call that chapter my last hurrah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's incredible.
0: Of well, I mean, you know, as an institution, of course, you it, you had a lot of access, being the Metropolitan, given its reputation, yeah. and that must have opened a lot of uh, doors, both nationally and globally, which was amazing. Um, one of yeah. the the issues I think museums have struggled with in the in the last years is. Um, in, is I guess how progressive they are, or how um, important they are really to pushing cultural change. Now right. at that time, the museum um, really, I mean by all accounts, lacked a lot of diversity. Um, and in in your view, um, how how did the museum contribute to that dialogue of diversity and and even?
1: Um, well, I guess it,
0: political it, changes in the culture.
1: In those days, it didn't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to, to be absolutely candid, yeah. um, uh, w- when I arrived in '66, and continuing, and, I, and then I retired in
2: 1993.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I arrived. It was a it was a wasp institution. Mm. Um, all the trustees the senior staff, uh, most board, of the curators, except, pardon? All the
0: boards. The
1: board. oh, all the board, the trust yeah, the, the board of trustees, trustees mm-hmm. the senior staff, uh, also the, um, uh, the the curators with the exception of European curators, like you know, uh, Dietrich von Baltimore, Greek and Roman, uh, Helmut Nickel Arms and Armor, Ernst Finternitz, Musical Instruments. Uh, it was pretty much a WASP institution. Uh, For example, a couple of the, uh, just to name a few, Arthur Houghton, president of the Board of Trustees, uh, CEO of Corning Glass. Um, uh, Oh, what was his name? Uh, uh, I I can't remember. Uh, Anyway, he was a grandson of uh, J.P. Morgan. Danny Davison, head of uh, U.S. Trust, uh, who went to Groton, founded by his grandfather, Endicott Peabody. Uh, this was this was the type type of name. I, I could go through name after name if I had them in sure. front of me. Yeah. Uh, oh, Robert Pernier was the was the grandson of uh, of uh, J. P. Morgan. So, so. a lot my, of
0: old money legacy.
1: Old money legacies, yes. And, and uh, but you know to go back um, and and this really ties in going back to the controversy over the expansion. Mm-hmm. At the city council hearing, uh, Douglas Dillon, C. Douglas Dillon, uh, who had been uh, secretary of the treasury, uh, ambassador to France, tremendously rich, uh, and and uh, uh, also head of Dillon Reed on Wall Street, was asked by one of the council members But all these rich people on your board, and Dylan pointed out that these rich people from 1870, the founding of the museum on, had contributed not not just time and effort, but billions of dollars uh, uh, of uh, either money or art to the museum and point out if they hadn't done this, it wouldn't have happened because government was not going to do it. Mm. Either private people were going to do it, or nobody was going to do it. Uh, what w- at the time w- one of the um, uh, uh, things I had to do was to accept bur- borough trustees. So now the board ha- has a trustee from each from each borough. Interesting. Uh, okay. You can't say if they added much uh, to the board. Mm. And a couple in my time were meddlers, <laughs> but <laughs> uh, they did they did do that. But I think Dylan was absolutely right. So, you know, we can uh, can make fun of all these wasps on the board, but they did create the museum and made it what it was. Uh, The museum at that time was also pretty much lily white. Mm -hmm. Uh, Each curatorial department had uh, 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 departmental technicians uh, to assist the curators. There was one black... Uh, departmental technician when I joined in uh, an ancient, an ancient Near Eastern art. Um, while I was there, uh, Lowry Sims in 20th century art became the first Black curator. Mm. And she served 20 about 27, 28 years, and then became director of the Studio Museum in Harlem and later curator uh, of the um, Museum of Arts and Design in Columbus Circle. Uh, uh, Lowry's a terrific person in fact I, when I was working on the museum uh, I talked to her about her time in the Soviet Union uh, when when uh, she she uh, had a few problems mm-hmm. one of her colleagues in Minsk came down with phlebitis and had to be operating on and then she had trouble uh, with Aeroflot trying to get a show back to the states but uh, Lowry could think on her feet uh-huh. and uh, did a great job. She's retired now down in Baltimore but uh, she was the first black curator and then she uh, said to me she said and after I left it took 18 years for the museum to hire another black curator who's a black curator in medieval art now uh, I don't know of any other I don't uh-huh. know of any other
0: so it's taken a long time. I mean, it, it's really a, a very slow moving machine.
1: Very very slow moving, but like almost every institution, I've just heard this from uh, people I still know at the museum and, and in the paper too, <laughs> museum has a either a director or vice president for uh, uh, diversity and inclusion. Like every organization in the country is doing now, yeah. uh, both cultural and business and, and government. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: But it was not. It was not progressive when I joined,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I can't. I, I I can't say that when I retired, uh, almost thirty years later, that it was progressive. hmm Yeah. In that sense. In yeah. that sense. Yeah. yeah. So
0: um, as we uh, kind of come to a close, I was wondering if you could, uh, in, in, your, in your own words, sort of talk about big picture, about uh, the value and the importance of a museum like the Metropolitan to culture at large and, and what that means in terms of its contribution to society, like in a, in a, in a kind of big, big picture view. Because um, we talked a lot about the details, but um, yeah. uh, you know, it, it must have also given you a real sense of grat- gratification to be um, at such
1: an important. Institution. I, I did. Uh, I, I do have that. I thought I brought. Uh, um, I, I, I I played a role in in bringing beauty and entertainment mm.
2: uh,
1: and education. I think uh, uh, going through a great exhibit to people all over the world. Yeah, and and because I think looking at a, at a particular painting or other work of art uh, in many senses is like reading a book. Mm. Um, and and uh, the museum is an educational institution. In fact, it's in the New York State Charter.
2: Mm.
1: that the museum is an educational corporation.
2: Yeah,
1: Education had been neglected from about 1954 until uh, Hoving took over. And Hoving was big on education. Mm -hmm. And I remember he appointed Harry Parker, who had been James Romer's administrative assistant, as head of education. And he built up that department. And then Harry went on to a great career as director of the Dallas Museum of Fine Arts and the Museum of Fine Arts of San Francisco. Uh, and and what, what one word in the New York State Charter says, education and recreation. Now I thought it was a pity in 1903 when when uh, they they sort of changed that and and but and really emphasized education, but they took out recreation. <laughs> It is, it is a recreation and entertainment to go to a museum and look at great art, mm. it, I, I think. Uh, and, and, and I'm proud to have played a role in that in bringing, bringing uh, exhibitions around the country. Uh, you know, I, I guess that's my big picture.
0: Great, well, thanks for your time and for your contribution. Uh, And uh, for bringing these uh, wonderful shows to New York. Uh, Could I just
1: say one more word?
0: Oh, please. Absolutely.
1: I just want to say one more word. Yes. Of course, I was in there for part of Philippe de Montebello's uh, uh, directorship, too. fine director. fine director. Uh, And Philippe threw a big uh, retirement bash for me in the American Wing Courtyard. And the next morning... I went down to the New York Public Library at 42nd Street and ensconced myself uh, in the rare books and manuscripts division and began my serious research on my first book. So it didn't take me long to make that change.
0: Wow. Yeah, that was one of the things I was going to ask you about as well as what that transition looked like. So so you really did not... What's moving? any grass grow under your feet at all.
1: No, sir. Well,
0: I really look forward to your upcoming memoir um, of your time at the museum. And so hopefully all of the folks listening today will uh, be reading it and enjoying it. Thanks for checking out Six Degrees of Silvis. I'm the editor of the show, Evan Halter. If you'd like to learn more about John or the guests we have on the podcast, please visit johnsilvis.com. Thanks for listening.